Father, let us magnify Your name and the power of Your Word and our attention to it. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit active in each of our hearts would be the teacher and not I. I pray, Father, that the words that I speak would be according to Your will. But uh, most of all, Father, I pray that this time would be pleasing to You as we have gathered in Your name for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Chapter 20. We, We ended last week, if you remember... Uh, kind of in the middle of something, right around verse 16. So today we have to jump back in to a discussion that Jesus is having in the temple. If you remember the scene, he's in the middle of the temple uh, in the court of the Gentiles in this case, which we described last time as that large outer area that surrounded the temple proper. It's in these grounds that most of the activity around the temple took place. It's where Jesus is gathered to teach. And we remember from last week he was in the midst of teaching when a, a group of men made up of scribes and the Pharisees and others, a delegation of chief priests, I know most notably, a delegation that we identified last week as being from the Sanhedrin. By virtue of its makeup, the people who were in it, we could fairly identify it as a delegation from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jewish authority. And up to this point, where we left off last week, we had heard Jesus responding to their challenge uh, by refusing to answer their questions. You remember this was the challenge they made of his authority? asking by whose authority he could teach what he taught. We went through all that. And as he responded, first by by not giving them the answer they wanted, but then secondly by going into a parable, we ended at the conclusion of that parable. And uh, to summarize, if you were here, you remember the parable essentially gave an opportunity for Jesus to teach that these bad guys, some bad guys in the parable, uh, were essentially the Pharisees, the leadership of Israel. And in what they were doing, rejecting Christ, rejecting God's Son, they were bringing about the fall of Israel in their day. And as a result of that nation's failure to accept their Messiah in that day, there was one verse there at the very end that I didn't spend much time on, but we will come back to it tonight. And it was in verse 16 where he says, the kingdom would be taken from these leaders, and by association, taken from the people who lived in the nation in that day, all the nation in that day, in other words, the kingdom was going to be taken from them and offered to others. Now, one thing to remember as we looked at the parable last night, we're talking in national terms here. One of the things that I think brings confusion in the minds of some who read the scriptures and, and don't take note of some of the detail is that there are times when scripture talks about nations of people, and this is especially true, of course, when you're talking about the nation of Israel. And there are different times when scripture is talking about things that apply on the, base, uh, on the individual basis in the life of any given individual. Classic example of that is in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 talks about vines and branches being grafted in and cut off and, and, and so on. And if you take that discourse, for example, to mean individually what can happen to you or I on an individual basis, you'll completely misunderstand what he's saying. You'll come to the wrong understanding. If, on the other hand, you realize that his context in chapter 11 is nations, Israel in, out, Gentiles in and out, nation of Israel being the root, nations of Gentiles being grafted in. If you understand his context is on a national level, not on an individual basis, then you get the right point. It's in that sense you have to, you have to look at these uh, verses here out of the parable in that same sense. He's talking here about what was true for the nation. nation. The nation of Israel was about to lose their opportunity to receive their Messiah in that day, not permanently, as Paul points out in his letter to the Romans, but at least for the time being, and more particularly for the people who were alive in the nation in that day, by and large, they were going to see the penalty for that rejection. Again, on an individual level, people could come to know the Messiah, the apostles being an obvious example. 
But on a national level, they were going to see the nation turned away from their Messiah and from the kingdom. And what did the crowd say in, in response to that conclusion? In response to Jesus' conclusion in verse 16, we saw the crowd saying, may it never be, which I talked a little bit about last week. And it has probably a variety of meanings, but one I did not address that I want to pull in tonight is this concept of them objecting to the principle that their nation would not receive the kingdom. That as a result of the rejection of the Messiah, as the parable explained, they were not going to have an opportunity to receive the kingdom in his day. Well, we know that's the end result of Jesus' death on the cross. But at this moment, the crowd is objecting to that possibility. May it never be. May our promised kingdom never go to others. May it be ours. But, of course, that was not to be the case. We said already that as he entered into Jerusalem at this point, the rejection had already taken place and Jesus' withdrawal of the offer had already, been, had already happened. All that's remaining now is going to the cross. So as we pick up in chapter 17, he's continuing now. Jesus is continuing in his commentary against these men. And he begins by quoting an Old Testament scripture taken from Psalms. So we're jumping right back into this moment where he's contending with the Sanhedrin. Look at chapter 20, verse 17. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. We'll pause there. At this point in the parable, the point where Jesus declared that the kingdom would go to somebody else, at that point when he described that the kingdom would be lost, the crowd reacted. That's the basis for their reaction. May it never be. And I want you to understand that that reaction demonstrates that they had followed that parable pretty closely. They had understood it very well. They understood its full meaning. You know how in many cases Jesus would teach a parable and the crowd in the moment wouldn't get it. And in particular, often the disciples wouldn't get it. And that's why they would get him later and say, hey, what were you talking about? And they'd get their opportunity to get the explanation. This is not one of those moments. By virtue of their reaction, this is a moment we can fairly say everybody got it. In fact, if you read a little further down the page where we are now, you'll notice that the Pharisees got it too. Everyone understood what was being said. And as a result of their reaction to him, Jesus says this out of Psalms. So I want you to understand, first thing, is that the reaction here, the, the commentary rather, of verses 17 and 18, is a direct result or a direct response to what the crowd had just said when they said, May it never be. They say, may it never be. He says, well then, don't you remember what's written in your own scriptures when it was said that, that this was going to happen? That's his response to them. I might put it this way. If I were Jesus and I didn't have such economy of language, my words to them might have been something like this. Are you surprised to learn this? What does your own scriptures tell you about the arrival of your Messiah? You think this is news? Let me remind you of something you've heard all your life out of the Psalms. And then see if it doesn't resonate now in light of what I've just told you. It's that sense in which he's responding. So he recites from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a very famous psalm in the sense that it is messianic. It would have been well known. It would have been something he could have quoted to that crowd. They would have instantly recognized it. They would have instantly recognized it as being a prophecy of the Messiah. It was known in that way. And when he quotes from it, he says that there's this stone that was rejected by men who were going about constructing a building. They were looking for masonry that they could use to construct a building. And they decided this particular stone was unsuitable. It was not suited to the purpose they had in building what they were building. 
But the stone that the builders didn't think was good enough for what they were trying to build ended up being the most important stone in that building. The cornerstone in any construction project is the most important stone. It lays out the lines for the building. It establishes not just where the building's going to sit, but how you orient it and how you level it will determine whether the rest of the building project goes according to plan or not. You know, if it's a little off in any way, that's going to propagate itself along the lines of the building until the whole thing is leaning in one direction or another. If the stone is not strong enough to bear the weight of the building above it and cracks, the whole foundation can go with it. So a cornerstone, by definition, was the most important stone in any major building con uh, project. So you were very careful about what the cornerstone would be and how you would place it. So the psalm is saying a stone that the builders thought was insufficient for any purpose ends up being the most important stone in the building that eventually is built. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. That's Isaiah's way of describing Christ as that cornerstone. It's interesting that both Matthew and Mark, when they talk about this same scene, they show Jesus including one additional verse in his quotation from Psalm 118. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus saying one more verse out of that psalm that Luke stops short of recording for whatever reason. In, Matthew's, or in Mark's version, for example, it reads like this in Mark 12, verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Both Matthew and Mark, when they quote from Psalm 118, where they reflect Christ's quote out of Psalm 118, they include the extra verse that attributes this whole situation to God Himself. They're, the conspiracy that ultimately is going to be responsible for bringing Jesus into the hands of the Romans under the charge of sedition, a conspiracy that ultimately arrives at his murder on the cross, that whole plan, we're told out of Psalms 18 and elsewhere for that matter, that whole plan is credited to God. It's not enough to simply say that God used the fact that these men were sinful. That is true enough. But it is also true out of Scripture that God purposed that these men would be involved. He purposed that they would be there so that their sin would take effect, so that their sin could accomplish God's purpose. You know, God from the very beginning set it, about, set it out so that there would be those in place whose natural sinful desires would take hold and in so doing would accomplish the purpose that God had for His Son, that He would be put to death. So when Psalms 18 says, this came about from the Lord, it's explaining to the reader back in David's day that Jesus' death was a necessary part of God's plan. Be prepared for it. Understand it. Which is why Christ can turn to the crowd in the moment when they say, may it never be, and He can say, well, wait a minute. Why are you surprised to hear this? Your own scriptures told you it had to be this way. Moreover, they tell you who's responsible for it, that God your Father has purposed it this way. I love the way it ends in that one verse that Matthew and Mark include. It's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes. It's amazing that God was willing to see His only Son rejected in the way that He was rejected, put to death ultimately in a very horrible way, only so that he could show mercy to those who would believe in it. It's marvelous that the plan is the plan that it was. And that's not something that the men and women in Jesus' day could have appreciated in that moment. That, that was probably asking a little too much for them to understand, particularly when they have him in their presence. Following the quote then from Psalms, 
Jesus offers an application for the crowd's benefit. So he's going to take what he's just told them and he's going to help them see through to the end. He says, everyone who falls on that stone is going to be broken. And everyone on whom it falls is going to be scattered like dust. I've had some folks ask me, well, I don't know which is better. I'm not sure whether it's better to fall on it and be broken or whether it's for it to fall on me. It doesn't seem like either one is a good option. I don't know who's who. Is he talking about who do I want to be? Or are both of these examples of bad things, of bad people, of unbelievers, to put it simply? No, clearly one is a believer and one is not. And let me explain to you out of Scripture why it is better to be one than the other. Let's talk about it in terms of outcomes. There's two possible outcomes for anyone who would have an encounter with this chief cornerstone, with Christ himself, whether in their day as a person on earth or whether you're in our day today as the Christ of Scripture, as Jesus from the Word. On the one hand, a person, we're told, can fall on the stone. They can be broken. They can go from an upright standing position of strength and self-sufficiency to one of having been brought low, having been brought down, having been broken over this rock, much like you might take a hard nut and crack it on a rock in that sense, to have been given a broken and contrite spirit, to use the spiritual terms. In fact, if you want to look at Scripture, I'll start with Psalm 34, where it's describing a man who would have that experience in this way, Psalm 34:17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. How about Psalm 51, 17? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. How about Isaiah 66, 2? Probably the best of the group. He says, For my hand made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. It's a contrast between humility and pride. Between self-sufficiency and self-righteousness on the one hand. And on the other hand, someone who recognizes their, their failures before God, their intrinsic lack of worth before God in light of his holiness and our inability to reach it. And turns to him in a broken way and says, but for your mercy I have no hope. That's the repentance that precedes faith. And that is the experience of someone who comes to Christ and is broken. They, they are made humble and brought low. Now, the other possible reaction to coming in contact with Christ, the Christ of the Word in our case, is that that person would remain resolute and proud and unrepentant. That, in other words, they see what God is offering through His Son and they refuse it. Either because they don't recognize their own need or are unwilling to see it in that way, or because they don't feel like Christ meets their need, whatever they decided their need is that person will ultimately be crushed by that stone. They will not survive their encounter with Christ. And that, of course, does not imply their immediate physical death in the moment they learn of Christ, but it is ultimately the case that they suffer an eternal judgment. Job 40, verse 12, puts it this way. Look down on everyone who is proud, speaking of God. Look down on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Or my favorite, Isaiah 2.12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. It's the ultimate dichotomy, the ultimate dilemma, the ultimate uh, contradiction of Scripture that those who are proud and lifted up will be brought low and those who are low and humble will be lifted up. Right? It's, it's, the exact, it's, it's what Scripture provides 
in a continuing way throughout. And Jesus' use of this psalm, as he quotes this psalm and as he makes his application, again, I think the crowd got it from day one, from moment one. I think they understood it all the way through, and I think the Pharisees understood it too. And so their anger is boiling up the whole time. And when he mentions this psalm, it only adds insult to the injury that came from the parable. And that leads them now into verse 19, as we see, to to think now even more strongly about how they're going to contend with Christ. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. Now I'm going to read further in a moment, but just look at that verse all by itself. Remember what we've been saying? There's really two things holding them back from doing what they will to Jesus, even up to this point. One of them has been that they have no force of arms of their own. They'd have to depend on the Roman army if they were to do things by force of arms. And so far, they haven't convinced the Romans to do anything. The other option is to get mob violence going on their side, to get the crowds against Jesus and to use them to riot against Jesus, which they've had success in doing in other cases. A good example, of course, is how Paul was able to persecute the Christians when he was Saul, in the case of Stephen particularly. That's mob violence without the Romans around to stop it. They can't get that done here either, though, as you see, they were very willing to try in that hour, but they couldn't do it for fear the people would stop them. Because at this point, the people are still aligned with Christ. So in verse 20, their only approach then was to do as we see next. They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So here's the dilemma they're facing. If there are two ways of contending with Christ, of putting him down, of essentially putting him to death, were that he could, they could either get Rome to agree with them, and Rome becomes their, their, uh, you know, their armed force. Rome becomes their bouncer. You know, Rome becomes the guy they, they call in, Guido, hey, come take care of this for me. You know, that's their one option. The other option is the crowds would align with their point of view and they would just riot up against Christ and he would, have, he would be discredited. Well, one ain't working. The crowd is not, getting, uh, is not going against Christ, obviously enough. They love what he's saying and they appreciate the fact that he's probably putting the Pharisees in their place. So their only other option is Rome. And as you can see in verse 20, that's exactly where they go next. In verse 20, they say, we are going to have to find some way to discover some kind of evidence against him that we can use with the governor to take him under uh, arrest from Roman authorities. So their only hope now is the Roman authorities. And they're going to put all their efforts now into that one avenue. We have to get the Romans on our side. And so that became their plan. Now, the first attempt to trick Jesus here through these spies, these men who would hang around pretending to be part of the crowd, but in fact are there to try to catch him, their first trick here is to make an accusation recorded in the next series of verses that uh, I will tell you is probably the most devious in all of Scripture. You probably don't appreciate at first glance just how good this one was. And you're going to look at it, as we go through it today, I think you're going to appreciate that. Look what they do in verse 21. So this is their attempt now to try to catch Jesus. They question him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Of all the ways that you'll see as you study the Scriptures, and particularly the Gospels, of course, of all the ways you would see the Pharisees trying to trick Christ along the way and all the times he's encountered them, This is easily the best. Its simplicity, in fact, belies its ingenuity because it's it's an almost perfect trap. Almost. And its perfection comes from its simplicity. And to fully appreciate how crafty this question was, we're going to have to consult the other Gospels because they give us a little more detail and we're going to have to learn a little bit about the political climate of Christ's day. 
So let's look at those other Gospels for just a moment. Beginning in, in Mark, we're only going to look at one verse. You don't necessarily have to turn there. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we hear Mark, and Matthew echoes pretty much the same thing. We hear Mark adding this detail. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. In Matthew and in Mark, that little bit of extra information is added as to who these people were. Luke doesn't bring that out, but these were Herodians and they were Pharisees. Why is that important? Well, they're key to understanding the deviousness of this plot. There essentially were about four political groups within the nation of Israel in Jesus' day. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Israel is a country, in their day no less than it is today, but it was a country ruled by religious law. You know, the Israel that you know today, that's in the land today, they're ruled by civil law. They have a civil, jurisdiction, a civil jurisprudence system. They have civil judges elected by the people. They administer a, ju- a law that's based on civil principles, not based on God's law, ultimately. Um, they do incorporate some of the Torah law into their national civil law, but it's not ruled by the Torah. The Torah is not the law. They have a civil code of law, just like the United States does. But in Jesus' day, the nation of Israel was essentially a theocracy without the king. It was a nation that still saw its own laws as coming out of God's word, not out of some code written by men. Now, that was, that's notional, because if you know how the nation of Israel's laws had been distorted by the Pharisees, it had long since actually become a law of men. But in any event, it was intended to be founded on God's law. So the political system of the nation of Israel was ingrained in a religious system because the politics of the nations came out of a religious law. So they had political groups like we do. They have political parties, if you will, just like we do today. The difference would be not with respect to uh, how they saw civil law. Like in our world today, we think of Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals, and those terms are meant to reference somebody's perspective as compared to a civil set of laws. I like to see you know, free trade. I don't like to see free trade. I like to have high taxes. I don't want to have any taxes. It's in with respect to civil law that you have a position that is political. Well, in Jesus' day, the same existed, but now it was with respect to the religious law. So political parties in Jesus' day took positions relative to your view of God's law. And there were several different positions you could hold. Uh, in the case of these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, you see two of the political groups represented there. The Pharisees represented the conservative wing of Israel. They were opposed to any foreign rule over Israel. They would never willingly give any credit or honor, for example, to Caesar, the name we give to the emperor of Rome. So the Caesar of the day was never to get any credit, never to be acknowledged as the leader of their nation, never to be seen as getting any kind of tribute from that nation. They were constantly to be opposed to him. Because as a conservative element of the nation of Israel, they saw God's law as the ruling law, God as the ruling authority, and no other man should rule over the nation of Israel but God himself through his law and through his appointed leadership. The Herodians, on the other hand, were sort of at the opposite end of the political spectrum. They took their name, in fact, from the house of Herod, which was the family that ruled the nation of Israel in Jesus' day, the the dynasty of that day. And they cooperated with Rome. In fact, they supported Roman rule. That's why they went by the name Herodians. They did not hold very strictly to the law because they saw Roman law as really the law they wanted to live by more so than God's law. And they promoted any kind of act to honor Caesar. So they, were, they wanted to see Caesar honored and they wanted to see Israel play nice with Rome. 
Now, you couldn't have imagined two political parties with more opposite perspectives than the Pharisees on the one hand and the Herodians on the other. Other groups were the Zealots. They were a sub-party of the Pharisees. You had the Sadducees, which we're going to see here later in the text. So there's these other groups that have other perspectives, but for now you see the two opposites coming together. Now, for all their differences, these two groups did agree on one point. They both hated Jesus. And it was that common view that brought them together in this moment. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he had rejected their rules and their authority within the nation uh, of Israel, and so he was an undermining influence on their authority. The Herodians obviously didn't want Christ because Jesus was declaring himself to be king of the Jews. And as such, he posed a threat to Caesar's rule. So neither of these groups had any love for Christ, and it was because of that that they came together to form this near-perfect trap. And here's how the trap was going to work. First, as you notice, they pretend to be on his side. They come in feigning as if they were on his side. In verse 21, we're told they say flattering things, and the point in doing, doing this, of course, is to put Jesus at ease. They're going to ask Jesus a question where they need Jesus to answer it honestly without any fear that he's being trapped. So they flatter him so that they'll think better, he'll think better of them. That if it were possible, they will ingratiate themselves with him, and now he'll lower his guard, and he'll be a little more willing to be honest and, and to say what's really on his mind. He won't be so worried about whether or not he's going to get in trouble over it, because he feels like they're on his side. Of course, their plan's going to fail for two particular reasons, right? On the one hand, Jesus sees through it. He's not fooled by that flattery. Secondly, everything Jesus said was 100% true. It's not like they're going to get more candor from him than they would have otherwise. It's not like he's going to be less transparent unless they butter him up. What he speaks is truth regardless of how he feels about the person. So they didn't need to do this, in other words. They were going to get truth from him regardless of what they said. It's a waste of energy. The next step in the plan, though, the point that's really important, is in the fact that they ask him the question that they do. They ask him, should, they pay the, should we pay the tribute tax to Caesar? Luke's version simply says, should we pay taxes? But that's not what they're asking. The word here for tax literally means the tribute tax offerings. Remember, the emperor of Rome declared himself to be God. So the Caesar of Rome said, I am God myself. And as God, like any God, he expected tributes. He expected offerings. The tribute tax was the official way that a subject of Rome paid homage to the God of Rome, to Caesar. So when you were expected to pay tribute to Caesar, you were essentially giving honor to another god, to Rome's god, to Caesar. That's why they call it a tribute tax. So for anyone to say, in the case of Jesus here, if anyone like Jesus were to say that Jews should pay this tax, they would effectively be saying that we should recognize Roman rule over Israel as legitimate and we should recognize Caesar's claim to be God. So if Jesus had said yes, pay the tribute tax, he would have been declaring that the Caesar was the rightful king, which was in direct contradiction to what he had said coming into that moment, which is, I am the Messiah. I am the one here to rule this kingdom that's been promised to you. What he's saying is, Rome as the legitimate authority, and more importantly, recognize Caesar as a man worthy of tribute, of offering, of what you would normally reserve for God himself. On the other hand, if Jesus were to have said, do not pay the tribute tax, he would have been advising insurrection against Roman rule. He would have been saying, disobey Roman law. Disobey Roman rule. Now that would have pleased the crowd, and it would have pleased the Pharisees, but it would have enraged the Herodians. So then they would have had an instant case against Jesus in front of the governor. 
In fact, later in Luke 23, these same men, we'll see when we get there, are going to lie during Jesus' trial claiming that Jesus did in fact tell the crowds not to pay the tribute tax, that they needed that outcome so they could accuse him before the governor. Remember the whole point of the trap? Going back to verse 20? So they could have something to take to the governor. So they didn't expect him to say pay the tax. They expected him to say don't pay the tax. And then the Herodians were brought in so that they would be able to have somebody who would make an accusation. Remember, there's only two sources of power that the Pharisees could draw upon in the hope of destroying Jesus. One was the crowd, and one was Rome. And by the way they asked this question, one of those two groups was about to get pretty angry. It's a perfect trap. There's no answer, apparently, that could avoid getting one of those two groups angry enough to do something about Jesus. So look how he answered. Verse 23, He detected their trickery, as we said, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now we understand at a high level what he just said and why that was helpful, but I don't think you can really, at least I couldn't really appreciate the depths of that until we get a little deeper into what he was actually communicating in the statement. He calls for someone to bring him a denarius. Now, again, in Luke's description here, he moves directly from that request into a discussion about the coin itself. In Matthew's Gospel, there's a break where Christ says, get me a denarius, and you see the Pharisees say, they went and found one. The Gospel writer says, the Pharisees went and got one, or somebody went and got one. Why is that significant? Because it means they didn't have one available when he asked the first time. In other words, in the moment where he's asking the question in the temple, no one had a denarius around. That's interesting, isn't it? Not not too long ago, we heard about money changers being in the temple and money being turned over and tables being turned over. Why would it take so much effort to go find someone in the crowd that had any coin of the the realm, of of the Roman realm? And it was because that currency was not accepted in Israel by those who were scrupulous under the law. Outside the temple, the coin of the realm was the denarius. But inside the temple, the only coin that had any value to anybody would have been Israeli money or the Jewish money of the day. That's why we had coin changers, remember? The reason there were money changers in the temple was that the coin of Caesar was not going to be accepted by the priests as an offering in the temple. You had to bring in Jewish money. So they bring this coin to Jesus. They had to go fetch it from somewhere. And then he asks his famous question, whose picture is on the coin? Obviously, the answer we get is Caesar's. Now, since it had the face of a man on it, the inscription in in the image of a man, The Pharisees had decided that for the sake of the nation of Israel, no one was allowed to carry it. And the Pharisees certainly didn't, although many in the Jewish culture probably did and ignored the Pharisees' rule because they had to have the money in order to do commerce under Roman authority. But to a scrupulous Pharisee, they wouldn't be caught dead with one of these coins. They'd never even handle one. They wouldn't even touch it. Because in the way they looked at it, they considered it idolatry to have in their possession a coin with the image of a man on it. So there was no way they would ever touch, handle, much less use a denarius. And so they'd never use it for commerce. Now the irony here is pretty remarkable. The Pharisees refused to pay tax to Caesar, right? And they say here that we know from their history that that if, if even holding one of these coins was idolatry, it meant that if any one of these coins were to have come into their possession somehow, let's say they were paid in a denarius from a Gentile, What would they do with that? According to the law, they couldn't keep it. According to their own law and their own view of their own rules, 
That money had to leave their possession. They couldn't hold on to it. It was idolatry to keep that coin, right? It had no value to them. But by their own rules, what was the logical thing to do with a denarius should they have had a denarius? Give it back to Caesar because it meant nothing to them. It was worthless to a Pharisee. They refused to do business with them. In fact, the coin shouldn't have been within Israel's borders if they had had it their way. And they couldn't pay a tribute tax with Jewish coins, right? I mean, if they had wanted to pay tribute to Caesar, could they have taken one of their Jewish coins and done it? No. It wouldn't have been worth anything to the Romans. They only accepted denariuses. So, if a denarius were to come into their possession, the only thing they could do is return it to Caesar because he was the rightful owner of it. And here's where it becomes most important. Are you paying tribute to somebody when you give them something of no value? If it's of no value to you and you hand it to somebody else, have you paid them a tribute? If you took a piece of paper and wrote $5 on it and put it in the offering plate, does that satisfy for your tithe? Have you tithed? Have you taken of your, of your wealth and distributed it and given God back a portion of it? You counted of no value. To them, the denarius was a hunk of metal. It had no value, and it wasn't even something they wanted in the first place. It was Caesar's. And in fact, I use the example of foreign currency. If you ever travel to a foreign country and you exchange money, and then when you get ready to come home, you exchange it back, but they, what, what do they never take back? Coins. You, know, you can exchange the, the big dollars, but you, if you've got a few coins in your pocket, you can't exchange that. So you bring home a bunch of coins, right, and it's souvenirs at that point. Are they worth anything to you? Can you do anything with them here? It's just a piece of metal. It's like a souvenir. That's the extent to which a, a denarius had value to a Pharisee. So when Jesus says, let me look at it. Whose face is on it? Caesar's. What he's, not, he's not just saying this is a Roman coin. He's pointing out the fact that, remember, it's got an inscription on it. You can't touch this, right? This is idolatry. You refuse to have anything to do with this coin, right? So why are we arguing over whether or not we give this back to Rome? It's the only thing we can do. Render to Caesar. The word render in the Greek, it literally means give back. Return. Return it to whoever it came from. Are you giving tribute to Caesar? No. You don't count it a value in the first place. It wouldn't count even if you were to give it to him as, as a tribute because it's not given out of the stores of your heart. It's not a sacrifice on your part to do so, which is the inherent requirement if you are to pay tribute. If, if in your attempts to give offerings to God, you're giving of something that is of no value to you, how can you call that an offering? How can you call that a tribute? I think sometimes about people who may give donations in the form of, a, of an old sofa that they were ready to burn, but, oh, let's give it to the church. Well, that takes care of our tithe this week. <laughs> Do the math. I don't think so. See the point. Then he says something even more interesting. And that point, now that you understand it, I hope you realize that what he's saying here is not pay tribute to Caesar, even in the sense of giving back a denarius. He's saying, stop making something out of nothing. You're not giving tribute even if you do give it back. But then he says, give to God what is God's. Now, what's he talking about here? In their, think about where they are in this moment. They're in the temple, and Jesus is seated before them, and he's been declaring himself to be the Messiah, and the crowd around him has agreed as much to that statement. And he says, give to God what is God's. So in their midst, they're sitting before a king who is likewise deserving of tribute. So the dichotomy that's being drawn here, the, the, the difference that's being created in their minds is, on the one hand, what are we to do for a man who claims to be God but isn't? Well, give him back whatever he has decided is a tribute to him, though you know it's not a tribute from your heart. Just don't worry about it, basically. But when you do know who God is, in other words, this man is an idol. 
So don't pay him the tribute of, that's, that's deserving of a god. Give him what he calls his own tribute and don't worry about it because it's not of any value to you either. But when you do know who God is, what are you obligated to do to that person? That's, his, that's, his con, that's the other side of the coin, not to use a pun. What are you to do now when you do know who God is? You know, it's easy to talk about how we won't do this for Caesar or how we won't, like, we won't give him tribute. It's always in the... I find this interesting within a Christian context. We do this a lot. We always tell people what we're against, what we, uh, what we will be opposed to, what we won't do. And that's, in a sense, what he's talking about here with them. Okay, I get the point. You don't want to pay him tribute, so be it. What are you willing to do for God, though? When you know who God is, what do you do? What do you give God? You're sitting before a king sent from God who, like Caesar, should receive a tribute. So what kind of tribute would be appropriate for God's king in this moment? Render to God what is God's. Render to God the glory that he is due. Romans 12.1 puts it this way. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, it's easy to put it in a financial context because writing a check and then forgetting about everything else after that is sort of an easy way to show tribute, right? Um, I think of it sometimes like a father who, rather than actually invest any time and effort in his children, will simply pay someone else to take them to the park. That's the kind of situation you're talking about with someone whose idea of tribute to God is, I write my check on Sundays and then I go home. I've done my part. In their own minds, they think that. Forgetting that God, that's the least of it. And I think what Christ is expecting of the crowd in this moment is, while you're worried about whether or not to render to Caesar what he's asked, what about God? What are you willing to render to God? And not just in the sense of your money, but in the sense of a spiritual service of worship. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which had been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. For what purpose? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not financial sacrifices necessarily, spiritual sacrifices. What is a spiritual sacrifice? Ultimately, it means denying self and picking up the cross. Not doing what our flesh and personal desires would have us do with our time and our effort and our honor and our glory and our finances and so on, but more taking God's expectations and God's obligations and making them our own and living our lives accordingly. That's what a spiritual service of worship is out of Romans 12, 1, and again out of 1 Peter. If you're thinking that you're honoring God in a sense, if you're thinking that your life is designed around service and honor to God, check yourself against what it is you're doing, not just what you're spending, and decide for yourself, have I actually established a lifestyle that lives up to that standard? Or have I taken a cheap and easy route which says, I've given them my money and I've been to church once a week. Haven't I done my part? When we look at what God's expectations are, they go so much higher than that that I think we all fall short. That's Jesus' expectations of the crowd here to, in, that, in that moment and for you and I today. If we recognize that Jesus is God, that he proved himself to be God, he saved us from the destruction we were justly deserved of. And he rightly now demands our complete obedience and dedication to his glory. Then where are we in that process? Are we giving back to God what is God's? So with that answer, Luke says in verse 26 that Jesus puts them all to silence. In light of how common the story is in our own experience, you lose the appreciation for how stunning the answer was to the crowd in that moment. It was like Jesus had just solved some unsolvable problem. He just proposed the cure for the common cold. He solved the problem 
that up till this moment was unsolvable in the minds of people. It was one of those ancient political debates that would never be resolved. And he resolved it right then and there. Imagine the silence. But at the same time, the thought of, well, that was simpler than I thought. But it's so profound. But yet it's exactly right. You know, there's that mix of emotion all in that one moment. They didn't know what else to say. So here you have the Pharisees and the Herodians, both quiet. They had proposed an either-or. You either support Rome or you don't. And Jesus had responded with a both-and. Do for both what they each have coming to them. Remember as I started at the beginning of last week, I mentioned that the time of testing is what's represented in this chapter where Jesus came in as the Passover lamb. During the week of Passover, every family brought in at the beginning of that week a lamb. They would keep it in their home for about four days. And in that time, the point was to inspect the lamb to make sure it was spotless so that when the day of sacrifice came, they knew they were sacrificing a spotless lamb. Jesus is going through his inspection right now. The four major political groups in the nation of Israel each are taking their best shot at him to show whether he is truly sinless. And of course, the two that have come in so far have taken their best shot and fallen. We have two more to go in this chapter. Next up the bat, the Sadducees. The Sadducees now are going to have their opportunity. Now, I want you to remember, we're still looking at the way Jesus was inspected here. So these are specific attempts to try to undermine or bring him down. That's the process here. Today we're going to read the riddle that the Pharisees proposed, and then we're going to sort of introduce them and their purpose as a political party. We're going to wait till next week to really finish the, the understanding of this parable or of this, of this riddle. So we'll kind of come back into it again next week. Let's look at the verses, though, for now. Chapter 20, verse 27. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So, as Luke describes this scene, he begins by acknowledging that the, Sadduc the Sadducees' distinguishing characteristic was this lack of belief in the resurrection. That's really their most distinguishing characteristic. It's not the only thing that distinguishes them as a political party. They were fairly liberal for the most part. It might be a liberal left-wing, if you will, within the political spectrum. But their most notable difference was this issue of resurrection. Basically, what the Sadducee felt happened when you died was that the physical body ceased to exist and all that remained was the spirit and forevermore you were spirit. They didn't see any kind of reuniting of that spirit to a new body, which is what resurrection means, by the way. I think sometimes people misunderstand that word. They come to believe it is simply a reawakening of your conscience. That's not what the word means. In fact, there's nothing in Scripture, scripture to suggest that your conscience ever ceases to be awake. There's absolutely no reason to believe you ever go to a point of suspended animation or some people call it soul sleep. That's not a biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is simply that you transition immediately out of one state into another. That's not, and that's true for every human being who's ever been born. All that we can say is that you go through a period in this life with a certain kind of body that will deteriorate and cease to exist in a future day by design, for it has to be replaced, it is sinful. And if you die in a faith for your salvation in Christ, then you look forward to a better hope, a resurrection of your body to an eternity in his presence. So you end up with another body, one that Paul says is incorruptible, different than the first, and it is one you will forever inhabit. 
those who would die without faith in Christ will likewise be resurrected at their own point in time, but to a different fate, to exist eternally in that body in, an, in another place, in a place that we would not prefer to be. And so the Sadducees did not accept that view of Scripture. And their riddle here is designed around trying to make Christ look silly for believing in resurrection. If you want to think about them as a political party for a moment, what do political parties love to do to one another? Make them look foolish, right? To tear one down. The thinking is pretty simple. If I make the other party look foolish, people are more likely to support my side of the, the equation. They're more likely to align themselves with me. And since the Pharisees were scrupulous, remember the Pharisee was your uptight, scrupulous, rule-making, rule-enforcing, right-wing extremist. Is that kind of person easy to make fun of or hard to make fun of? They're easy to make fun of. Anyone who gets wrapped around rules is easy to make fun of, especially when you're someone like the Pharisee whose rules were so internally contradictive that it wasn't very hard to find ways of of illustrating how their own rules were silly, how their rules worked against one another. And the Sadducees, being more liberal, more rule-adverse, They kind of played fast and loose with the rules. It didn't matter to them very much how closely you followed the law. That being their nature, well, guess who was always making fun of who? The Sadducees took great delight in making the Pharisees look foolish under their own law. So while the Pharisees were attempting to bring Christ down by showing that he violated the law, remember what they held precious was the law? So their attempt to attack Christ was to show him violating law because law was everything to them. Sadducees, eh, they don't care so much about the law. So their focus here is not about making Christ look as though he's a lawbreaker. What they wanted to do was show him as being foolish, that his sense of order was all wrong, much like they used to do to the Pharisees. So their approach is a different one. Their approach is to come in and ask a question that by its nature will make the one who tries to answer it look foolish for trying. That's the goal here, discredit him in front of the crowd. I like to think of it in terms of the odd couple. Remember that television show from the play and from the movie? You know, Oscar and Felix. Felix is the uptight one. Oscar is the loose and, and laid-back one. Who always made fun of who in that TV show? Oscar, the sloppy one, was always making fun of Felix, the uptight one. Never the other way around. It's that sense of a, of a dynamic that exists between these two groups. Okay, so with that background, they contrived this silly question to make him look foolish. We'll go into this next week. So we're going to leave it at that point today. What this question depends on, though, is the Leverite marriage rules out of the Old Testament that required that there be an heir to a, to a family when the man dies without a child. So we'll go into that. We'll look at why they ask the question the way they do. And then in the way Jesus answers it, we learn a little bit about what we have to expect in our next age as we come into our new body. It's an interesting discourse. And then we'll finish out the chapter and move on. So with that, we'll end. Let's go to prayer as we finish tonight and then we'll have a time of fellowship. Dear Heavenly Father, in your word we find the mysteries of the ages answered, Father, and an even different uh, and deeper mystery present in the form of your wisdom. Thank you, Father, for the wisdom of your word and the revelation that it brings with each time we study it. I thank you, Father, that you brought your Son to earth and gifted him with your wisdom, the wisdom of God himself, and that as God in human flesh, Father, he was able to contend with the foolishness of men. May we never be foolish in like manner, Father. May we never approach you or your Son with an attitude of supremacy or pride. May we always approach in the humble manner that we should as one who recognizes that we know so little in comparison. And may we be taught by that wisdom. And may that wisdom, Father, guide our steps. And if it be your will, may we return next week to continue in this study. 
We thank you, Father, for the time we've had this evening, and may we travel home safely. In Jesus' name, amen.